I see another plane in the distance. And this is probably President Nixon's plane, I would say, coming in away in the distance. It's coming in very gently. It's uh, coming in quite low now. Here it comes. You can feel the star in the crowd down here. Snowdrops and daffodils, butterflies and bees. Ireland was a very different place in 1970. And over the first weekend that October, a largely forgotten visit here took place. Into these more innocent yet equally more troubled times, a subsequently disgraced American president appeared. The plane is coming in now, approaching. She'll touch down very soon now on Irish soil. Coming in now, see lights flashing. This is the archive of Nixon arriving at Shannon. Did any of you hear the... Were you, I mean, were you working away here? Did you have time, Z, to... Yeah, time to bless ourselves here. So you didn't, you've never heard this? No, I've probably not. And President Nixon's plane has just touched down. Air Force One has landed at Shannon Airport. The 37th President of the USA, Richard Milhouse Nixon, has landed. Have you ever heard this, Kevin? I haven't, no. I was at the airport at the time. So you saw this happen? Yeah, I saw all this happening, yeah. Michael, you were waiting for him in hospital, so would you have, not in a hospital, but in the village of hospital? I possibly would have, you see. He, um, we had a schedule. He was supposed to reach hospital at 6 o'clock. Now, he didn't get there until 8, but uh, it's very hard to recollect what you heard on the radio 40 years ago. <laughs> I remember there was a good crowd now meeting the air, aircraft. I mean, there was, there was Jack, Jack Lynch, Taoiseach and Maureen Lynch, um, Ambassador Moore and his his wife, um, our family. I remember when they they got off the uh, the airplane and after the initial greetings and the speechifying, my dad's brothers were there as well. So he introduced him to his brothers, which was must have been quite something for him to say here. Here's my friend, the President of the United States. <laughs> Mr. President, Mrs. Nixon, on behalf of the people and government of Ireland, Curran Lord Mr. Prime Minister, Mrs. Lynch, and all of the distinguished guests who are here and our friends from Ireland, Mrs. Nixon and I want to express our very great appreciation for your very warm welcome as we set foot on Irish soil. I do proudly claim, as do uh, almost all successful American politicians, an Irish background. <laughs> and if I could complete my remarks with what I understand, and I wish I could say it in Gaelic, but uh, I'm not sure what he said about me, so I won't try to say anything about you. I understand, though, that the traditional Irish salutation on this occasion, and if you will pardon me for using it, I think it fits this occasion so well, Joy be with you all. Thank you very much. The president is, is still in the middle of the crowd, to the best, best of my knowledge. He's lost from view. The Gardaí are ready. Everything is set. The road, the road to Limerick is clear. That mist which I talked about, I think it draws closer to us every minute, but it hasn't come yet. Michael O'Sullivan, you are a local historian from hospital who happened to have witnessed, more than witnessed, Richard Nixon's uh, part of his visit here to Ireland. 
I was acting as a steward, as were quite a number of the local people. And our brief was to keep the crowds on the footpath and the roadway clear. So the cavalcade arrived in the hospital about 8 o'clock. It was supposed to be there at 6. And it proceeded up the street to the southern end of the town where I was stationed, attempting to keep to the, the crowd on, on the footpath. As they approached, the uh, crowd surged from both sides right across the, the road and stopped the motorcade. And I was standing at the verge when the surge came and I wound up bang up against the, the side of the presidential car. The next thing that happened was the president decided to get out and meet the people and he was shaking hands with all around. And of course that led to a greater surge because everybody in the crowd wanted to shake his hand. So there was a danger of him being squashed against the side of the car. So uh, and one of the other stewards, Michael English, and uh, I, we put our hands on the roof of the car, our backs of the crowd, hands on the roof of the car, and we pushed and we made a little space and he climbed up between our arms up onto the roof of the car. And he continued to wave and, and shake hands with people, and he seemed to thoroughly enjoy the whole experience. So it could be said that you saved President Nixon's <laughs> life. <laughs> Stretching it a bit, <laughs> yes. I could have changed history. <laughs> the President's host in Ireland, John Mulcahy, and the weekend White House, his lavish mansion at Kilfrush. We're in Kilfrush House, which is where Richard Nixon spent the first two nights of his visit to Ireland. Now, Zita Hayes, you were the manager here at the time, so you know all the work that went into preparing the house. Tell me about that. Well, it was we had relatively little time to prepare. It was absolutely hectic, not just uh, for the staff, but for the American embassy staff arriving. They could arrive any time. First of all, the house wasn't quite finished, so there was an awful lot of just basic things to be done. Uh, you know, finished painting and, uh, well, all the furniture, I suppose, was here by then, but it was just chaotic. But unobtrusively, all around him, security, precaution. The man being entertained in the quiet Irish countryside this weekend is President of the United States. What about security? Was that, was that a nightmare? Absolutely a nightmare. Well, even before it, we had a lot of security. They came and uh, checked every bit of the house, every wardrobe, every on top of everything. They climbed all over the place. When he actually came himself, we had a Secret Service man outside his bedroom, a Secret man on the return at the landing, one at each end of the stairs, and they changed positions every 15 minutes. They were all over the grounds and in the kitchen the night of the formal dinner uh, we had two guys in the kitchen tasting the food. Two more guys at the bottom of the stairs down to the basement which would have been our wine cellar. Two more guys <laughs> allowing nobody down there. I think he's the one that's going to save democracy for us. Was it his idea to come here or did you persuade him? Oh no, definitely his idea. Uh, but he would like to see the beauty spots of Ireland, the very beautiful Ireland that I know so well. Kevin Mulcahy, you are the son of John A. Mulcahy, who owned Kilfrush House back in 1970. What are your memories of the visit? I hosted the, the second dining sitting in the smaller room here, 
And uh, one, of, one of the people we had there was uh, Henry Kissinger. You would think he was a very dry man, a very serious man, but he was absolutely hysterical at the dinner table. He used, he used his German accent to, to great effect. He was to come here two years ago on an extended vacation of at least two weeks. But unfortunately, something intervened. And ever since that, he's been endeavoring to come back, even for a short weekend such as this. I was going through my dad's kind of letters, and there's one in, from 1968 from Richard Nixon. And it's, um, it's basically just after he was nominated for the president. And he said, uh, I have not forgot your, inv- your invitation to me to come to Ireland for a short time after the convention. My plans are still somewhat nebulous uh, through that period of time, but I am somewhat in doubt that I'll be able to come because I am sure there will be a busy time for my staff in the campaign planning. Uh, so it just really says that since 1968, he had the standing invitation that came to Ireland. It took two years for him to, to come across. Well, there was a major conference here on Sunday morning. The Vietnam peace talks had been going on for 20 months in Paris, and who attended that meeting as well was Henry Kissinger and the Secretary of State Rogers and uh, Appointment Secretary, I think, was it? Who was, but, that, who was that guy? Who was Bob Haldeman. Famous from Watergate. Yeah. Aren't they all? <laughs> where, where are we now, Zita? This is what we'd call the breakfast room, but it's just the small dining room, leading on to the main dining room. Was this small one used during This the is the one that this Kevin was, was hosting. This was the one where I hosted uh, Henry Kissinger, <laughs> Bob Haldeman and the group. And this room now is, is much bigger. This is the main dining room. It was magnificent. I mean, the table setting was just magnificent. Everything, of course, was Irish. Irish linen, mats and coasters. Each place had a silver, sterling silver Irish plate and three goblets per person. Uh, Mr Mulcahy sat here and Mrs Nixon here and Mrs Mulcahy there and Mr Nixon down there. Then we had, um, you know, the VIPs, uh, Taoiseach, Jack Lynch and Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, and Ambassador Moore, of course, Who and was his the wife, American Ar- ambassador to Ireland. Do you remember what was on the menu? Oh, I do. Have yeah. you got a copy yes, of it? Yes, You have, have a copy yes, of the menu? Yeah. Oh, let's have a look. <laughs> Irish smoked salmon, clute bay oysters, Aran scallop soup, or consomme with sherry, uh, steam comorous salmon, hollandaise sauce, Cecilstown pigeon crust pie, boiled... P- pigeon pie? I'd never heard. I'd never had it, but anyway. <laughs> boiled limerick bacon and cabbage, Spring Hill lamb stew, roast conked fillet of Irish beef. And then there was baked and boiled water-filled potatoes, tossed green salad and cream of spinach, and deep dish apple pie, omelette surprise, cheese board and Irish coffee. Now, um, where where are you taking me to now? To the living room where the peace talks ah, were. Okay. And of course, it was co- totally cut off. Nobody come near it by either door. And uh, the talks were here. Very it's quite a size. How many would have been in here at those meetings? Well, there were six main participants, and I suppose they had all these. Aids running yeah, in and out yeah. and checking this. and it's probably a dozen altogether yes, probably, into the room. In fact, I was just wondering that you, you were talking about the, speech, the peace talks dragging on. And there was a time when it was agreed to go in and bomb Viet, uh, Hanoi. 
And that could have been a decision that could have even been made at this house. After two days in Kilfresh House, on the morning of Monday, October 5th, 1970, Richard Nixon flew by helicopter to the home of his ancestors and a small ancient burial ground outside the little village of Timahoe in North County Kildare. Now, as we talked, there's a, another buzz of excitement, another helicopter is approaching, approaching from our right. It's very hard to say which one it is from this distance. We'll wait, we'll keep you informed. Yeah, you could still see it. One isn't certain as I can't from here see any markings. Yes, it's coming wait. straight into land. It right, doesn't it bring back the excitement of the occasion? The breeze um, made by the blades moving the leaves from the trees. And there's a second helicopter and a third helicopter following now. Yes, indeed, I see the Secret Service men running there with their, with their walkie-talkie. This is very impressive indeed. It's like some of a movie, because there were big, <laughs> big men in black suits, white, and the, the earphones, and they were just flying all over the place the minute the helicopter landed. They certainly were wearing suits that you wouldn't buy in Cleary's or in Ireland at that time. It would seem indeed as if the President has landed now. A movement forward by the crowd now. Do you remember where you were, Donica? At the moment. Only vaguely tell you the truth, only vaguely. We were quite far away in some ways and all these secret service or special branch men, they were like demented wasps around the place, you know. We were afraid of being stung. Yes, I think the party is coming up the path now towards the presentation area. James Cullen, we're now in the uh, cemetery in, in Timahoe where Richard Nixon was in 1970. How different is it now to what it was like then? Uh, It was looking very well on the occasion of the visit because there was quite a considerable clean-up. There was an outline of uh, the meeting house uh, which was situated over there, which was uh, evident just over in the centre of the So Can we see it? Uh, Well, we can go to the exact spot of where it was. Uh, It was... It appeared to be in this area here. Right in the middle of, of, of what's now a field. Of what's now a field. A walled field. A walled field, yeah. yes. This would be the site of the meeting house. And the meeting house was very close to the cemetery. The meeting house was, was over here and the cemetery was this side of it, between the meeting house and the road. So where we're standing was the old Quaker cemetery in Timahoe. The old Quaker cemetery in Timahoe, uh, where the people, the uh, 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 early 18th century Quakers were buried and the meeting house was just over there the entrance was from the road into it into it here they're coming in now close to us not quite the president as is his wont on this Irish tour seems to have lost himself in the crowd Marion Marion Moore, but at the time Scully, am I right? That's right. Yeah. That was your, your dad's field at the yeah. helicopter's landing. Yeah, Tell me about so. all that. Tell me about your memories of the build-up to it and, and what happened. The bit I remember was months prior to this happening, the, my dad was out in the fields working and he'd seen a lot of men, large men, official-looking men in black suits, going around kind of looking under stones and kicking about and whatever and he went down and this other large man got out of a official car and it turned out to be Mr Moore the American ambassador 
came over, shook hands and told him what he was looking for. Mr Moore wanted to see. He said he heard that Mil, um, Milhouse Nixon's relations were buried here. At the time, it was controversy of Timoho and Timoho Leash, but we knew it was Timoho Kildare. <laughs> and uh, so he walked him up the field and he brought him out here. Now, it was a totally different thing at the time. There was headstones, broken headstones around. It was overgrown with bramble and whatever. So he had no qualms about getting over the gate below and coming in and rooting around and he found what he was looking for. And it started from then that... When you say he found what he was looking for, what was the evidence that he, he spotted? He found the headstone. After that, the FBI nearly lived with us, you know, and the Border Works, the local people, um, the local societies all got together and they cleared it. The local people, mind you, and um, the Board of Works, I think, deserve have great credit for all the work they have done here in preparing this and the excavation and the cleaning it's certainly a credit to them and looks very impressive this morning the local people indeed have been interested in this project from the very start and as you know as I said they've claimed hotly they claim Richard Milhouse Nixon for themselves and I would imagine that they welcome here's a man who who brought um, I suppose these these pictures to the to the entire country Um, Dunnock O'Dooling uh, of RTE fame um, do you remember much of, of being here 40 years ago? I do now but until I heard that tape I had forgotten most of it but I remember the little girl with the flowers I remember President Nixon and the speech and being very moved and touched by it and the crowds that were here and I think today what comes back to me is that Ireland has changed in many ways but in other ways, it hasn't changed at all. And I think of the wonder of an American president here talking about Ireland. It was unbelievable. I wonder who will be the first person to greet the president. Well, the, the presentation is being made by a local man, and this little girl, Heffernan, presenting him with a bouquet of flowers. Sarah Heffernan, you were here as well as a very young girl but you became quite famous because you had a very public role in all this yes yes I was I presented Mrs Nixon with a bouquet of flowers and when the Americans came to um, Mr Scully's field Marion's dad he uh, the burial ground at that time was was owned by the, was Heffernan family land so this is Heffernan land uh, it's not now yes yeah, Heffernan family land yes yeah is yeah. that why you were chosen yes yeah. your family connections yes yeah do you remember it? Do you remember the buzz? Oh, I do, yeah. yeah. I was very nervous, actually, yes, yeah. And uh, we were actually, if I could show you... Um, Please do, We yeah. were standing... Um, if this, I'm not sure if that's the original spot. The microphone would have been here, yeah. And we received the presidential party, actually, in the gap of the field there from the, the helicopters and made our way up um, through the crowds. And so President Nixon was standing here with, with the microphone and then was Mrs. Um, Goodbody. Mr. President... Mrs. Nixon, it is my great honor to present Mr. and Mrs. Dennis Goodbody. Mrs. Goodbody is the historian of the Society of Friends in Ireland and has a presentation to make to you, sir. Mrs. Goodbody is um, now shaking hands with the president. Rob Goodbody, you weren't here, but your grandmother was. My grandmother was the curator of the Friends Historical Library, which is the library that keeps all the records for the Quakers, the Society of Friends in Ireland. And in that role, she would get frequent um, inquiries from people on their genealogy. And so one of those was probably the big one, 
uh, was when the embassy uh, uh, contacted her to ask could she do something on the genealogy of the president. She presented him with some of the documents that she'd unearthed uh, in her researches on his uh, family background here at Timahoe, and uh, I made a little speech to him. We welcome you to Timahoe and to this quiet hillside where your ancestors lie. We hope that the courage, the faith, and the integrity of your ancestors will help you through the sorrow, the trials, the anxieties, and the sadness which come to every man in your great office. That's, yeah, I think that, that sentence uh, said a lot about how nervous she was and how difficult her position was in making that speech. Um, it was, uh, the, she must have spent ages writing that now, very carefully. The President is examining the presentation now quietly. I found it very moving and very revealing. She was very nervous. Now, on an occasion like this, um, it, it would be a nerve-wracking occasion when the eyes of the world are on you. But there was much more to it than that because uh, in amongst the Quaker community of the day, it was a very controversial thing as to whether the Quaker community would get involved at all in the Nixon visit. Uh, the Vietnam War was probably at its most controversial at the time, or certainly uh, the, it was extremely controversial. Um, Nixon, as a Quaker, a professed Quaker, a practising Quaker, um, uh, to be involved with a war of that magnitude was sat uncomfortably with Quakers worldwide. Moves up to the microphone is about to speak. Richard Milhouse Nixon. Ambassador Bohr, Mrs. Goodbody, Mr. Goodbody, and all of our friends from Timahoe and County Kildare. As you know, I am a member of the Society of Friends, and uh, this uh, cemetery is in a spot where once there was a church where the Society of Friends in Timahoe worshipped. As Jessamine West, who has written so eloquently about the background of our family, has said, the uh, Quakers have a passion for peace. My mother was a pacifist. My grandmother was a pacifist. Jessamine's mother was. Her grandmother. Our grand, her grandfather. Going back as far as we know. The greatest purpose and the greatest goal I have, and the greatest purpose and the greatest goal the American people have, is to play a role to bring peace not only to America, but to all the world. That is what we want. Do you remember, as a, uh, a very young uh, reporter at the time for RTE, do you remember knowing why he was here? Not really, not really, not particularly. But I, I remember, of course, um, seeing him in Shannon initially, being at Sh Shannon Airport watching him. But this was different altogether to Shannon Airport or anywhere else because this was home. And I think his speech, his speech electrified us. It had to. He had no script. He had no nothing to be reading. And he just gave it out as it happened. I think um, it, it was Tim O'Hoe gone worldwide. Now the presidential car is moving away down the little tree-lined road of Tim O'Hoe, followed now by the Secret Service car. The band plays away, flags wave, crowd relaxing. 
beginning to move away. And so on this calm morning, the 5th of October 1970, as the presidential party from America moves away from Timahoe into County Kildare on their way to Dublin, Timahoe people begin to wind their, their way home. The field begins to grow quiet here, and Timahoe comes back to its quietness, the quietness of the centuries, the quietness of this little cemetery here, perhaps undisturbed, or if disturbed, happily disturbed by this morning's happy proceedings. So from Timahoe, on behalf of Liam Horrican, this is Donna Dooling, returning you to the studios in Dublin. Everybody talks about a new world in the morning. From Timahoe, Nixon's motorcade wended its way through the tiny back roads to Pat's hometown of Kildare. Here as a nine-year-old, he lined out along with the rest of the town's schoolchildren to greet their esteemed visitors. And I can feel a new tomorrow coming on. Here we are in the Kildare Square. Um, Ray Darcy, where were you on the morning of October 5th, 1970? Do you remember? Uh, it was 1970, so I was just turned six. Okay. Uh, I was in first class, and we all stood in front of Johnny Boyle's. Which is uh, just over there. That's where you there. were. Yeah, so there would have been a class of, I don't know, 30 or 40, six to seven-year-olds, and we all had um, American flags. Uh, okay. uh, and we stood there, and we waved them as President Nixon passed by. Yeah. I was about, so uh, maybe 200 metres down the road on the other side, on this side. Yeah outside J.J. O'Donovan's, what was then J.J. O'Donovan's. We walked up the, the hill, we turned the corner, we waved our flags, we turned around, went back down the hill and back into class. So you didn't even, we didn't even get the day off? No. Oh, no. I, I don't oh, remember, no, no. I, I, I remember making a flag the night before right. with a, a broom handle and uh, a, a white handkerchief, thumbtacks up along the side and red and blue marker. Right. And I waved that down the other end of the street. Right. I was the only one who made a flag... I've no idea why, but I did. Do you remember what happened here in the square? No, no memory of that whatsoever. Even though you were directly opposite it? Right? Yeah. So you should have seen the Irish dancers and you should have seen them stopping there. Yeah, no memory of that. Okay. Now, if, 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 if somebody had said to me that uh, President Richard Nixon stopped in the square in Kildare, I would say, no, not in my life. He definitely didn't. He just passed through. But you're telling me now he stopped. Uh, we have three other eyewitnesses to Nixon stop off in Kildare. Bernadette McWee, you organised as as the teacher. You got this Ray yeah. Darcy pop up. That's Explain right. The background. Well, that's right. Wherever Ray was that day, I certainly was there too, <laughs> because I was his teacher. Now I can remember going into school that morning, and the nuns had boxes of flags in the hall of the school. They gave us the flags. I don't know where they got them. We gave out the flags. And I'm sure I spent the rest of the time actually counting heads because I would have had 40 heads to count. I can't remember actually seeing the president at all. I think maybe I got a little flash of him as, he, as the car drove away. Catchy O'Mahony, my sister-in-law, mm-hmm. you remember the Irish dancers, do you? Yes. Where yeah. were you? Um, we were standing, I think, just outside Boland's, but I on, distinctly on the, on the corner. I distinctly remember being walked up by Sister Evelyn, um, my teacher of the of fourth class at the time, and standing there. And I think the Irish dancers were here in the square. Yeah. But again, I don't remember the um, seeing the president himself. So I've, you remember the dancers? I here, remember the but... dancers, and I remember walking up, but I do not remember seeing President Nixon. 
But your family, you have a story to tell about your brothers, and we hear an American accent, so what's the connection? Well, we had just moved over here to Kildare uh, two months before President Nixon arrived, and my two brothers, John and Pat, um, were going to school in Newbridge at the time, in the Patrician Brothers, and the day that President Nixon was arriving was my elder brother's 18th birthday, and they did not want to be waving American flags. So they decided the night before to strip the sheet off their bed, and they painted on the sheet Boston Bruins number 1 because um, the Boston Bruins had won the Stanley Cup that previous May. What's that, ice hockey? It's a big ice hockey uh, competition. It was like winning the All-Ireland, basically. And they produced the sheet as President Nixon was going by, and the motorcade stopped. So this and is after he'd left Kildare and yes, he was going up via on Newbridge into on into yep. Nace. And President Nixon actually stopped and got out of the car and came over to Pat and John and started questioning them about Boston Bruins and ended up taking a corner of the sheet and John and Pat took the other corner and had a picture taken which then ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated and of Boston Globe uh, the following couple of weeks. Yeah, so my brothers really remember President Nixon coming. Loretta O'Mahony, my sister, my little sister. Um, you have a picture and you have a story to tell. It may not be Sports Illustrated <laughs> or the Boston Globe, but it was published. What, it, what, what was the story? Um, I was just gone four at the time and my uh, dad brought me up the town um, on his shoulders and... Um, got me through all the agents that was his big thing he just brazenly walked through security he said and uh, hoisted me up and um, I met Mrs Nixon first and and she kind of tapped the president on the shoulder and said you know there's a little girl here who uh, wants to meet you and uh, the photograph was taken and it was all over the papers the following day and Uh, you have the picture there I have the picture with me there is proof that Richard Nixon was in Kildare I actually remember it was taken over the far side of the square. And there. is that the car there? That's so, yeah, he wa- yeah. so I didn't imagine it. It was an open-top car. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for a moment there I thought I imagined that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's Mrs Nixon. And this is you. This is me. Oh, yeah. My husband, Des, actually, he remembers uh, manhole covers being sealed beforehand by security, yeah, or any place that danger might be lurking. <laughs> Have you heard any stories since about, about the Gardaí here in Kildare? Because I'm told that there was a bit of tension between yes. the Secret Service and the Gardaí. Well I heard, I'd been, I'd been speaking to a few guards who were actually uh, serving at the time and that's the general opinion. The Secret Service more or less took over and uh, the Gardaí weren't too happy. And I think uh, I was told the story today that uh, a Garda car or a number of Garda cars were leading a sort of a motorcade from probably from Timahoe and um, there were a group of security guys in a great big long car and they were led very fast over some bridge on the way and I think <laughs> I think they actually took flight for a little while yeah <laughs> that's one of those really humpback bridges over the canal I, I think so I think so that was 1970 yes. four years later he became the only American president to resign. Is that, do you think, maybe one of the reasons why we've for- forgotten about him? No, uh, I think the reason we forgot about him was because it, we were sort of, we were just hired help. 
you know, we were, we were just rent a crowd. We were just fluffers, you know. Now, now, you know, we were marched up, wave your flag, you're great. I don't know who you are. Back down to the classroom, and that was it. You know, like uh, yeah. it, it was, it was a bit of a non-event. And now, when I stand here and I think that you know the president of America was was here, it's a lot more impressive now. Uh, and to think that he was probably the most famous person that ever set foot in Kildare Town. Before leaving for the US that evening, on the final leg of this short Irish visit, President Nixon headed to the capital for a series of brief official engagements. Mike Burns here with the news just after 1.30. Later we'll be bringing you live coverage of President Nixon's first Dublin motorcade, from Ars Nuctron to the state luncheon at Dublin Castle. But first, the latest news in detail from Morris Adati. President Nixon, on the last day of his Irish visit, is now meeting President de Valera at Oris Luchteroin and will leave shortly for a state reception at Dublin Castle. Earlier today, President and Mrs Nixon flew by helicopter from Kilfrush in County Limerick to Timahoe in County Kildare, where his ancestors lived. Kevin Healy, you reported on which leg of uh, Nixon's visit? Well, I reported on a number of legs of the President's visit uh, in Limerick, but also here in Dublin. Limerick and Mayo, uh, Ballinrobe, where Mrs Nixon made a visit. Um, But I was also one of the reporters covering the live motorcade in Dublin, which went from Oris and Oakdoron to Dublin Castle. And I was situated here, which is at the top of Wine Tavern Street at Christchurch, and I was broadcasting from a covered walkway or bridge which links the Synod Hall with Christchurch. And there were no bells ringing in the background? There were no bells uh, on that particular day. Well, there are, I would say, um, about 200 people at the junction of Wine Tavern Street and Merchant's Quay. I'm speaking to you from the Synod Hall, actually, which is directly opposite Christchurch. And There was uh, another journalist who was supposed to be on the motorcade. Uh, he was Sean Dignan, who later became RT's political correspondent. And Sean was to travel in a mobile outside broadcast unit... And it was effectively a radio car, and it may well have been or would have been one of the first ever live broadcasts on a mobile radio car. But Sean was to join the motorcade at Orson Oakdoron, but turned up at the wrong gate of Orson Oakdoron. And as we know now, a presidential motorcade doesn't wait for anybody. Don, I understand that uh, Sean Dignan may in fact be with the motorcade. We'll try and contact him in the RT radio mobile van. Sean, can you hear me and can you come in, please? Oh, we're still having difficulties, obviously, with uh, reaching Sean Dignan. Let's go back to Don McMahon. The Irish and American flag. We arranged to meet um, afterwards in a pub nearby here, the Brazen Head. And um, Liam Horrigan and myself were first in. And then we were joined by a very... Uh, remorseful Sean Dignan who told us what had happened, that he'd missed the motorcade. Mike Burns, our boss, arrived in, proceeded to tear strips off Sean for missing the, uh, the, the motorcade. And I remember Liam and myself, Liam Horrigan, we just sipped our pints and kept our mouths shut, uh, figuring we were OK, we'd done nothing wrong. But then Mike turned to us and he said, as for you two, what about the eggs? You missed the fecking eggs. 
And I said, what eggs? We didn't know what he was talking about. He said there were eggs thrown at the President of the United States. He could have been assassinated. And you effing idiots would have missed it. As the people are cheering and waving there, the, the President is standing up on the car. The roof of the car is open. He's, he's waving. Uh, he hasn't stopped at all. He's moving on all the time. Martin de Burke, 40 years ago, you were one of the three people, I believe, who threw eggs at Richard Nixon. Where was it? I was down on the Keys. My friend uh, and myself uh, split a half a dozen eggs between us. Where did you get the eggs? Uh, there was a little shop, believe it or not, a little, a little small shop somewhere around Delir Street in those days. And I went in and bought half a dozen of eggs. And I didn't want uh, Martin, Martin O'Hagan, who was subsequently shot about two years ago by the UVF and Lurgan. Poor Martin. But um, I wouldn't let him stay with me because I felt that the guards might recognise me. And if they pulled me in, they'd pull him in as well. Why would, why would they have recognised you? Well, <laughs> Were you a bit of a troublemaker a bit, in your a day? Little, a little, yes, <laughs> just a little. Uh, so I said, you go off and do your own thing. And he said he'd go to the castle because we knew he was going, going into the castle. So um, I disguised myself. I, I made like an American tourist. I had, uh, I had uh, dark glasses a headscarf and a, and a trench coat, none of which I ever wore normally. And uh, either the guards didn't recognise me or they didn't decide to do anything about it. I, I, we all heard at the time that the, the security men had thrown their weight about so much that the guards had more or less said, stuff this, let them look after their own president kind of thing. There, there was a guard in front of me on the keys who must have known me. And I think they decided not to do anything about it. But anyway, <laughs> I knew I wouldn't get hitting Nixon because I have no aim, whatever. So I decided to aim for the windscreen. And I did a lob, overarm lob, that I'd, I'd been told was the most effective way to hit something you want to hit. Got a dead centre on the windscreen. I was so proud of myself. Then the, I was grabbed by the guard and uh, hauled across the bridge with a clatter of old, old Dublin ones saying, throw her in the river, throw her in the river. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was... And then Martin, poor Martin, uh, was at the castle. He threw his eggs. He took to his heels. And all the old Dublin ones said, go, young lad, go, run, run, run. So they took a shine to Martin. They took a shine to Martin and they wanted me thrown in the river. <laughs> It sounds, what we did now sounds funny. And it was probably funny enough at the time, but by God, there was a serious, there was a serious reason behind it. I mean, I was, we were all so, so, so caught up. The idea of the Vietnam War was so repugnant. I, I remember the, 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 the absolute passion with which I, you know, I, I felt about that war. Uh, still waving, he's about halfway up Wine Tavern Street now and just about to come to the junction with St. Michael's Hill as he comes to the, the biggest crowd in this area, which is at Christchurch Place. Yes, he's moving past now. It was only seven years after John F. Kennedy's visit. Nixon, um, he was tainted in many people's eyes by the Vietnam War. So there wasn't the same sense of belonging that we had, that, that he belonged with us, even though he had these Quaker roots in uh, Kildare but not the same linkage at all that there was between Ireland and the Kennedy family. It's the crowds waving and cheering, and he's gone on, he's, he's not standing up, he's sitting back in his car, and he's now on Christchurch Place. I think um, he uh, was probably very conscious 
of the huge Irish vote that John F. Kennedy got. He was, he was probably looking as well to the 1972 presidential election. He saw how it helped Kennedy in 1960 and probably figured he had nothing to lose by trying to get some mileage out of, out of an Irish visit. It was seen as, I think, it was just another stop um, after his visit to Europe and to London. He's almost a forgotten president, really, even in America, isn't he? You know, he's not, he's not well respected or regarded or spoken about. Or it's, it's almost as if they want, they're a little bit embarrassed and they'd really like us all to forget him. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com.